This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are Elena Litkina Botello, one of the co authors of The CEO Next Door, a new book about leadership, and Andy Silvernail, uh, CEO of IDEX, who is one of the leaders featured in the book. Uh, Elena and Andy, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton Podcast. Uh, Elena, maybe we could start with you. When we spoke about a year ago about your research uh, on the CEO Genome Project, you told us about four behaviors uh, that define great leaders. You now have a new book, The CEO Next Door, uh, that's about those behaviors, but also a, a lot of other things. Uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about, could you tell us about your book and also what, the reasons why you believe Andy uh, is a leader who illustrates the principles of your book? So, Mukul, with the book, we sought to apply 21st century analytics to this holy grail of leadership, which is who gets to the top and why and how, and what does it take to be successful at the top? And so in a, very fa- in a fashion that Warden would be very proud of, uh, <laughs> we took our database of 17,000 leaders we've assessed up close and personal, took a sample of small, of 2,600 leaders, and then did follow-up interviews with about 100 CEOs to really look at the patterns of what, what it takes to get to the top and succeed there. Uh, one of the things that surprised us is that actually... of CEOs didn't intend to become CEOs early in their career when they set out into the career path, and frankly, even in mid-tenure in their career. And it's only as that role became within the striking zone for them that became a relevant career aspiration. Um, And so then we looked at, well, then how did they get to the top? And this brings us to Andy. Uh, One of the things we found these CEOs master is this balance of getting extraordinary results and getting noticed for those results. And there are few people I know who have mastered both sides of it as well as Andy has. Um, so on my way here on Amtrak from D.C., I um, decided to make sure that you know we've got some good fact base right behind it. And if you look at Andy's stock chart, so his stock chart, the actual stock chart of IDEX, looks like what normally you see as promises that are made to investors, but very rarely actual stock charts. So he's got the privilege and pride, I hope, of actually being a CEO who delivered the hockey stick. So if you look <laughs> at you. what happened to I, and I, I actually had to double check my math because it looked like you were trading in the 40s in the 2011 when you took the reins, and now it's like 140. So you'll have to tell <laughs> yes, us more about how like that, that happened. Yeah. And so when it comes to results, it's really extraordinary, extraordinary performance that Andy has been able to deliver. And getting noticed, well, not only is he featured in the CEO next door, which is a very (laughs) rarefied set of leaders, um, he's also maybe not as impressive, but but also pretty good, is also featured on Forbes 40 under 40. (laughs) And so clearly Andy is somebody who's mastered both sides of the equation of getting results that are really, really outstanding and getting noticed for those results in the right way. Thank you. I'm just really That's delighted that Thank you, thank you very much. I'm, I'm blushing on radio. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, picking up on what Elena just said, I mean, clearly we want to talk about the results and how you got noticed for them. But I wonder if you could take us through the arc of your own leadership journey and some of the inflection points that helped you get to the position that Elena was talking about. Maybe start at the very beginning. You grew up in a small rural town in Maine. And did yeah. you even intend to go into business? What's, well, uh, t- t- uh, take us through your journey. N- no, I, I, so I grew up in a, in a town, a small town in Maine. 
And uh, um, so my dad was a social worker, and I, I grew up. Uh, he roused. Uh, I'm the youngest of four boys, and my mother passed away when I was very young. So my father was in charge of, of raising four boys as a social worker, um, and it was uh, um, kind of a rough and tumble environment, as you might imagine. With four boys, we were separated by three and a half years. And my dad was a social worker, so when we moved to a mill town when I was kind of seven or eight years old, what I knew about a business was a mill, a paper mill. And what I knew about people who worked in the mill were basically you know, folks who worked on machines and whatnot. And uh, my father-in-law's example, I met my, my wife in high school. Uh, my father-in-law was a, was a maintenance supervisor, and so that's what I thought of as business. And, and every once in a while, the mill manager would come to town, and people would spend a month cleaning everything up, making it perfect and whatnot. But uh, um, my perspective wasn't wasn't business at all, and so uh, I went off to, to to college with actually the idea of being a doctor. And my grandfather was a physician, and I admired him immensely. And and uh, chemistry got in the way of that. <laughs> in my second term of chemistry, I realized I was not cut out for being a physician. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I did some real soul searching around what I wanted to do with my life, and it actually took quite a while. And if I'm if I'm honest, by happenstance, I, I ended up in uh, um, doing an internship through a friend of mine's parents' business out in Chicago, which I'm actually on the board of the company now. Here we are, 30 years later, and I sit on the board of that company. They're, they're dear friends, and they had built an amazing manufacturing business called McLean Fogg. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a family-owned business still today. Worked for them as an intern, and I realized I really liked business. And what I realized was I liked business because it was about people fundamentally, when it was all said and done, everything was about people. And there's a, there's a link here back to that, because what I realize now, um, here we are all these years later, and, and my dad passed away about a month ago, is I realized that I'm just a really highly paid social worker, mm-hmm. and uh, in some ways, very much in the line of, of the work that my father did. And, and so I went on a kind of a little bit of a quest, McCool. Um, in that quest meeting, I went, I, my first real job out of college, I was a, an equity analyst for Fidelity Investments, which is a wonderful company. Um, but I realized very early on I was not cut out for being an investor. I, I didn't want to be a reporter, so to speak. I wanted to be in the game. And so I um, had a series of, of experiences that I realized, boy, I liked what I saw as an intern. And so I decided to go back to business school, went back to business school and ended up with an internship. And this is at the internet bubble. So the world is is bubbling. Every person in my class is consulting, investing, or starting an internet business, right? That's what everybody did. And I went to work for a company called Danaher Corporation. And I went to, uh, um, I went to work for Danaher as, a, um, uh, as an intern. And I worked for uh, a gentleman by the name of Dan Comas, who just retired as the CFO of, of Danaher, who's a tremendous human being. And what I saw at Danaher was this interesting combination of process and people, just this fabulous combination. And uh, a spectacularly high-performing uh, company um, that uh, uh, really has done remarkable things over time. And so from, from there, I spent several years at Danaher and, and saw some things. And then, frankly, I, I, I made some mistakes along the way. And uh, uh, I, I went to work for a business that I won't, even, I won't name okay. that, that, frankly, um, it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. It was a mistake. I went to work in an environment where um, some of the people were a real challenge. The culture was a challenge. It, it didn't fit. And I realized it very early on. I remember going home and seeing my wife and saying, 
what do I do? Like, I, I know I don't fit, but I've just left Danaher for this giant job. And frankly, my ego got the best of me, if I'm honest. Yeah. And, uh, and I realized I didn't fit, and it was a really bumpy time and, and, and caused me to, to really think about a lot of things. And then I was recruited by the former uh, um, CEO of Danaher. He had retired. Um, and I was recruited to a private equity-backed business, and I went in as a president of a business. Uh, we had a lot of success. We ended up selling the, the business to a, another private equity uh, company. But myself and my boss, uh, not, the, not the chairman, he was the chairman of this company, myself and my boss had a very difficult time from day one, really, really difficult. We, we, did, not, we did not connect in any way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and so I spent four years working for somebody who I really struggled to work with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and ultimately, we had a pretty tough parting of ways. Mm. It, was, uh, it was tough. And, and frankly, they fired me. Mm. And that was not fun, right? Yeah. The idea of, of being fired is, is not fun. Mm. And, um, and so on the one side, you look at things and you say you have all this success because we grew the business, we sold the business, and yet um, the board ultimately decided that they were going to keep him and, and not me. Right. And that was a very tough time in my life. And so, you know, that is when I came to IDEX. That's how I got to IDEX and all these years later. Yeah. Well, that, that, you have thrown so much at us that I could, I could go on asking you half a dozen questions yeah. about the things you just said. But, but I want to turn back to Alina to talk about what you said right in the beginning about growing up, uh, you know, in, in a family of, uh, with your father being a social worker in, in, in Maine. Uh, so it, it, uh, Alina, I, I, I guess one of the things that struck me as uh, Andy was speaking was that he comes from not a typical background that you imagine for a CEO. Uh, and, and I wonder, as part of your book, uh, how typical is that for CEOs? Does a privileged background necessarily lead to leadership? So one of our biggest surprises in the book is, as I, you know, I'm taken by your story, Andy, every time I hear it, and it does sound striking, right? It's not when you, you know, see your photo on the Forbes list or you see other high-profile CEOs out there, the story you just told is not the story that most of us imagine. And that, in big part, is really what drove us to dig into the data because actually, and you know very well, so we're often brought in by boards to help actually decide who gets the CEO role. Mm -hmm. And what struck us in that work as we spend hours and hours with executives like you is that it's not a path that we all expect. Right. And that actually your story in many ways is more common than we would expect. Um, and there, there are so many parts of what you just said that resonate with some of the research that um, that we have. And, you know, I would even start with I love how you framed your role as a CEO as that of a social worker. So one interesting tidbit. Right. If you think about somebody who gets to the top, you know, one common advice everybody hears is, well, you've got to found, find powerful mentors. And reading a little bit about you, I think you've had some of those mentors. Yes. What's astounding, actually, is that when we look at the analysis and the data, those who get ahead, those who are more likely to get picked, are those who stand out, not necessarily because of powerful mentors they had, although they've had powerful mentors, but actually that really early on in their career, early on in their life, sometimes even in school, they become mentors to others. Mm. And so to Mm. me, it was really striking to hear you say that today, that, gosh, you know, that is very much something that's supported by data. And so if I, coming in here, if I thought Angie was such a fabulous example of the data points, <laughs> now even more so. Another, another point that you, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons, frankly, you got featured in the book, because we 
had to, it was hard to choose, is how candid and forthcoming and thoughtful you were about your failures. Mm-hmm. And just now you share, because again, it's very easy when you look at the results and when you look at somebody who's been successful, it's really easy to assume that it was kind of an unfettered path to the top right. and that it was one success after another, one carefully planned career move after another. We were shocked to find in the numbers, and then you gave great, wonderful, colorful story that's in the book about that actually what differentiates successful CEOs and those who get a shot at the top job isn't actually that they don't make mistakes and isn't even that they make fewer mistakes than others, but it's actually how they go through those mistakes, how do they process them, how they learn from them. I love the story you told that we share in the book about how in your very first days as a CEO at IDEX, right? That's right. You had a huge blow up, right? And so we find 45% of CEOs in our data set, 45%, not just had mistakes. So 100% of them had mistakes. Uh, Life altering mistakes. You just have to. (laughs) But like, yeah, real blow ups. So we call them blow ups in the book. And so then we dug in and we thought, well, so what happens? You know, surely their careers probably took a dive. We were shocked to find out that really what separated success from failure long term wasn't lack of failure, but it was all about how you process it and how you deal right. with it. So we found, for example, that CEOs who used the word failure to describe their experiences were half as successful as those that were very matter-of-fact and very forthcoming and just used it as a learning opportunity. Right, right. So since we have heard about the blow-up, can, can, can we hear the story for our listeners? Oh, come on, leave it for the book. <laughs> <laughs> come on, but how, how about at least a little bit of it? I'll, I'll give the Reader's Digest first. You can How's that? Yeah, so I, um, I did, uh, bef- just before being named uh, CEO, I, we had... Uh, con- we concluded uh, the biggest acquisition in our history that I had led. I'd led the, the, the path to buying that business, and uh, uh, it didn't go very well. I'll leave it at that. And and there was a it was a huge learning experience in many ways. Um, but I, I think you know, Elena. I think you're right. I think as you when, when I when I look at the leaders that I want to groom and I want to put in positions, I think it's so critical that. People have had had serious moments in their life of challenge, uh, and, and that comes in many forms. It may be athletically, maybe in a family, maybe at some point in their work. But uh, when you're at this level, uh, every day something comes up. It, literally every single day something comes up that 20 years ago you would have thought of as impossible to deal with, and yet you have to deal with it today. And so that that sense of, of perseverance, of grit, the term that people have used a lot, I, I think it's it's uh, it's a very important trait, and it's not it's a learned trait, right? And it's learned through experience. And so even today, when we when we look for people, we are looking for people who who have had to persevere through things, um, because I think it's a really important part of success. One of the board members I work with said the most dangerous thing you can have is a CEO who's never failed. Absolutely. Right. And we actually, it's funny because when we interview people, or when I interview people, one of the things I always do is I ask them, I don't say, you know, tell me about your failures. I don't ask that question. Well, but, you leave that job to us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I, but I do. I, I, I look for people to have transparency and candor mm-hmm. about things that didn't go well because I, I know we've all lived it. If you're, if you're at this level of an organization, whether it's a university, right, or it's a consulting firm or a business like mine, you have to be able to deal with those issues that are central to it. And, and I think that's an important part of seeing someone's character and development and the likelihood of if they're going to succeed. What also struck me in how you described the experience in the book 
is that your first concern in the situation where just out of the gate as a brand new CEO, last thing you want is a big blow up. Right. But what struck us as we interviewed you is that your first concern seemed to not be about, oh, my God, how do I save my face? But you went. You just want, it felt that you wanted to do the right thing, and you went to the yeah. board that wanted to pay your team and said, "No, we shouldn't get paid full bonus." And you went to the team that thought they should get paid <laughs> full bonus and told them, "Well, actually, yeah. not quite. It shouldn't be quite that good either." And yeah. somehow, so what? What? But what struck me back to your social worker point, yeah. Andy, is that maybe what helped you power through that failure is that your first concern wasn't how to save your your hide, if you will, right. but how to actually do the right thing by others. That's that's a great point. So so just to be clear that that it wasn't quite as black and white about people being paid, right? It was, <laughs> it, was it was more a big question mark about should you or shouldn't you? Yeah. And there were people on my team on one side of it. There were people on the board that were on one side of it. And a big part of what I had to do was is what side do I advocate? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we collectively came together to say no. There should be impact, right? We 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 didn't deliver. For our shareholders, what we said we delivered, we didn't deliver for ourselves, and we should have impact. And, and it was not a very popular choice. But um, to to the point, I, I think when you get into these situations where you have real difficulty, especially as a leader, if if your first reaction is to is to CYA, that is going to move through your organization like crazy. If your first reaction is to 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 look at the the facts. And to really do root cause analysis and say, what do we learn? How do, how do, how do, what do we learn from this? What do we do with this information so we get better as an organization? And I, that was a pivotal moment. So, so recognize that the write-off that we did happened in the first quarter of – first or second quarter of 2012. And you mentioned the stock chart taking off. Go back and look at when it actually took off. It took off in the third and fourth quarter of 2012. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the huge learnings that came out of that was how we collectively allocate capital. Mm-hmm. That was the mm-hmm. big learning. How do you allocate capital? And we changed it. And in November of 2012 was when we changed it. And that was a very important pivot point. What did you change and why? <clears throat> we were a company that had principally thought of excess capital. So we're, we're a very cash-rich company, produce a lot of cash flow. Um, and our businesses can't absorb all the capital organically. And so there's, there's lots of capital left over. That's a real blessing to have. Um, and the question becomes, what do you do with that capital? And you have a series of choices, as you know, right? right. It can sit on your balance sheet. You can give it back in dividends. You can buy back stock or you can buy other businesses. And historically, our choice had been almost always to aggressively buy other businesses. And we started to struggle with that. Our model started to struggle. And so we had to change that model. And so what we changed to was a much more flexible capital allocation approach where we said, wait a second, it's almost like playing poker. I'm not a big poker player, but it's, it's like you have to deal with the cards you're dealt. Mm-hmm. Right. And so depending upon how the world is situated, that dictates to some degree, gives you the parameters of the world you can play in. And so we started to think about capital allocation as being much more fungible mm-hmm. and being driven by how do you think about shareholder return? Starting with, have we fully funded our business? So you were able to adapt. Yes. So you used you used the failure as a way to really adapt. A- absolutely. I wonder if I could take you back to a sort of previous failure that you mentioned in your yeah. uh, opening remarks, uh, where, where you made a certain couple of career choices that didn't quite work out. Yes. Uh, what did you learn from those experiences, and especially what did you learn about 
being in a toxic corporate culture. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to that. Well, so I think what's, what's really important about this is first starting with, that was my experience. So when I say the, the, the environments that I, were, that I was in were toxic for me, mm-hmm. right? And that's very individual. For somebody else, it might not have been at all. Right. And so I think that's a really important point. And so the, 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 I think what matters there in the learning is understanding yourself really well and knowing who you're going to surround yourself with. So all around, 360 degrees, is, are, are the people and the culture, are they aligned with who you are authentically? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it's when you're in those inauthentic situations that you have that friction and it becomes an impossible situation to live in. And so I think so. One answer is surround yourself with the type of people that you align with. As your leader, it means really thinking about what kind of culture you want to create, and then being explicit, very, very explicit. That way, people can buy in and and opt out of the culture, and they know it. So one of the things that I admired, and I still do to this day, very much about Danaher Corporation, where I was an intern and then had my first job out of business school. They are very explicit about their culture. There's no question. And so what that means then is that the right people opt in and the wrong people opt out, and that's not a judgment. And because of that, they've had some of the best performance you know, in the world in the last 20, 25 years. So what kind of an example uh, would you give to, you know, how are they explicit about the culture and how does it create buy-in and opt-out? So, so one of the parts is they have a, they have a, a very, very high performance Right, so if you're somebody who is who is driven by high performance and, and enjoys that, that's that's a very important part of it. Their business system is central to who they are, and so if you like process, if you like to be part of something that has a lot of process, perfect for you. Right, so those are just a couple of examples. Yeah, Danaher is probably one of the most. Oh, so in the in our book, we talk about a lot of underestimated or uh, unknown CEOs who are real gems. I think Danaher is a corporate example of that, where I think Danaher is actually probably one of the strongest CEO factories. Absolutely. Um, that it, and I think it, it does rest on process and culture. That's a very co- consistent Absolutely. refrain that yeah. I hear. So the question for you, Helena, was uh, be, based on what we just heard uh, Andy say, uh, especially about surrounding yourself 360 degrees with people who, who, who become part of your team, uh, what did you find in your research for the book uh, about the ability of CEOs to succeed by by managing their team? Yeah, one of the fascinating surprises um, that we found in the analysis is, you know, when we work with CEOs who are just coming into the role, and you know, we have a lot of conversations. We're often called to help those that are coming into the role. And often their number one concern, and I don't know, Andy, how that resonates with your own experience coming in the role a while back, but often the one thing they feel that they really get nervous about is their board. Because, look, by the time you get to the CEO role, the reason you're there is you've been a great general manager, right? You've delivered results. You know how to manage people. By that point, you would have managed, you know, on average, it takes about 24 years to get to the CEO role. So you've been leading people for 24 years. And so it's natural that the one piece, the one part of the puzzle that feels really scary because now these people determine whether you have the job or not, they determine your compensation, um, and so it's very natural to worry about the board. Uh, and so a lot of our conversations and coaching with CEOs around, is around that. Now, in hindsight, when we do ex-post analysis, what we actually find is that 
CEOs, 75% of their mistakes, and we kind of analyze specifically pivotal mistakes, right? Those are kind of make or break mistakes, all about people. And so it actually made no sense to us, right? So we've been advising leaders as a firm for uh, for over 20 years. You know, I've been I've been doing this for a while. And so it made no sense. Why is it that the one thing that you think you know, I think Mark Twain said something similar, right? It's not, or Warren Buffett paraphrased someone, that it's not things that you don't know that will kill you. It's things that you think you know, but just aren't so. <laughs> and so it turns out that shockingly coming into the role, the one thing, and it's, it's actually hilarious because... I can tell you every conversation I've had with someone coming into the role, I've shared that this may be their experience and they all not kind of shake their head in disbelief to call me 18 months later and saying, God damn it, you were right. <laughs> God damn it. You know, and what's different? What's different? So we spent a bit of time in the book exploring. So why is it that the one thing that you supposedly know how to do coming into the role is the very thing that'll get you in trouble? Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons is that I think, when we're under pressure of a new leadership role, it doesn't need to be CEO. Whenever you're stepping up to something that feels like a big opportunity and a big challenge, we tend to maybe try to play it safe. Yeah. And then what happens is what we perceive to be safe, which is, oh, maybe hiring people that remind you of you. Oh, maybe bringing people that were really loyal soldiers to you and did really well in the old job. Um, it's not, it, it, it actually turns out to be the most dangerous thing to do. And so it turns out that playing it safe when it comes to your career choices or when it comes to navigating your big leadership role, at times is the most dangerous thing you can do. It's very interesting. What you said, Alina, reminded me of something I've heard saying that the the opposite of knowledge is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but, but, but coming back to what Alina said, uh, uh, how have you managed your relationships uh, with the board? And, and, and what, can, what lessons can other CEOs learn from your experience? So, so first, I would very much agree with Elena. I think that uh, when, when people move into this job, there are a couple of issues relative to boards, and I put investors in the same boat if it's a public company. Um, most people have not had much experience, and they may have had interaction with the board. They may have had some interaction with investors, but they haven't had to manage the board or manage investors. And so they move into this big place of unknown, and it sucks up huge amounts of time. And, and then what happens is exactly what you said, the things that actually create output for the business, right, which, is, which are your people suffer. And then you start a death loop, which is business performance starts to suffer, which means you start to manage the board more, which means you start to manage investors more. It's a terrible cycle that you see people get caught in. And so um, so I think, uh, you know, part of it is you got to be aligned with your board. You have to have pure alignment. And that actually starts before you take the job is understanding and my board actually gave me an incredible gift when I when I became CEO which they decided that there was going to be one spokesperson on the board to me they decided that that was going to be the case and it happened to be someone who was who was who was a mentor of mine and in that way I didn't feel the need and they didn't feel the need to have this really wide conversation we could have a narrow conversation and it was in retrospect it was an immense gift to me cuz I frankly I might have fallen into into the trap that you mentioned, Elena. I might have fallen into that, and they gave me a huge gift. Sounds like they function almost like a private equity board, right, where it's very clear. Well, well, they, they, no, they, they, don't, they don't function like a private equity board. I think what they realized is, so I was 40 years old when I became CEO. So I was, I was young, I was inexperienced, 
and and they recognized i think some of these traps that people do fall into and so they said let's let's focus this so i think um, I would anybody who listens to this podcast, I would say, boy, if you as a board, if you can do something like that for your new CEO, wonderful. Yeah. Don't don't because the CEO will respond to you. So if you spend a, send an email, they're going to respond back. And so that's I think one thing. The other thing I think to fully to fully recognize is the the flip side of that death cycle that I just spoke about is the performance cycle. And so when you're performing, it becomes much easier to build relationships with people. And so, and to put the, the deposits into the bank account with those people on a regular basis. So talk to your board regularly, talk to your investors regularly, not when it's just a great moment, like it's over the top, wonderful moment, and not when it's a disaster, but you have that dialogue that, that's going mm-hmm. all the time. But to your point, it, it all relies on performance. And when I say performance, I mean, absolutely share performance, but the financial performance underneath it, and far more importantly, the performance of your people, the culture you're building, employee engagement. Um, those are the things that allow you to build those deep, sustained relationships. The, uh, you, you mentioned being uh, 40 years old, and Elena mentioned uh, earlier about your being on the 40 under 40. Yeah. Uh, how has your ro- view of leadership evolved uh, from the time when you became CEO as you have grown into the role? That's a great question. Um, you know, a couple things happen on that maturity curve. So early on, there's a, there's a, for me, there was a real sense of urgency about being very deep and very hands-on. There was a real sense of urgency around that. And, uh, and I think just because I, I, I inherently knew those, those first few years of make or break, You've seen that a thousand times, Elena, right? And, and I and I understood that. Um, and so, you know, very hands-on. You're experimenting a lot. You you haven't led at the at the enterprise level yet, so you're making a lot of mistakes, and you're having to pivot back and forth on that. So, I think with time, what happens is you realize that the the boat actually sails much better when you're not moving the till back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> And so I'd say that first step in maturity for me was was really recognizing that, hey, hold this thing steady, and 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 go with the breeze, move, let it let it take you. And when you have to move, move once. Don't you don't have to go back and forth. The the phase that I'm in right now, the learning phase that I'm in and have been for a couple of years, is really around letting go even more, mm-hmm. and realizing you don't even have to hold the till, mm-hmm. right? You actually the, the real job. Is is looking at the horizon mm-hmm. and figuring out kind of how you're going to do that and making sure you've got people around that, and then the next phase is getting off the boat, right? Yes, which is often the hardest. <laughs> well, right? Yeah, I can imagine. It's I hard to be a successful CEO, but getting off the boat is yeah. So where... so it's a maturity curve, right? It's a right. it's a maturity curve, um, and a lot of it. And this is going to sound very strange, and Elena, you and I haven't talked about this so much, but. There's a big piece of it that's learning how to sit quietly. Mm. It is learning how to do nothing, Mm. which is a really hard thing to do because all of us who got this job got it by doing things. Mm -hmm. And and when you get to the phase of actually doing nothing and letting people execute and actually organically letting strategy develop, letting people develop that, it might be different from what you came up with. And it's usually a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Elena, question for you. Have you, did you encounter other CEOs in your research who learned how to sit still as Andy is describing? Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of power in silence and stillness. 
There is. Well, and it's so what was so powerful in what you said is it brought another example to mind that I'll share, but in so many ways, getting to any next leadership job, whether it's being a CEO in particular or on the way there, is in many cases exercise and kind of rewiring yourself, right? Because yeah. it's very much kind of what got you there won't get you, what got you here won't get you there. And it's been fascinating to actually hear your learnings as you came along. Um, a while back, our team sat in a management meeting um, of John Zilmer, who was very successful CEO of Allied Waste back then and now on boards of many public companies. And it was actually astounding because what we expected is to see, and he's a very powerful guy. He similarly has a hockey chart, a hockey stick uh, stock chart and is a really high impact player. And so we expected that he was going to, you know, run the room and be, you know, really strong presence in the room. He pretty much said nothing in the entire meeting. And we thought, wow, this is what great leadership looks like, right? To your point earlier that when you actually build a strong team, shockingly, the hardest job in your entire life Maybe about sitting still, right? And letting <laughs> right. your team do what you've kind of wired them to do. Let them do the job. Something else I just realized, actually, which I probably should have known before, is that I don't know if you realize that you're a sprinter. I know you knew you were a football player. But did you know that you're a sprinter, I'm Andy? a sprinter? You're a sprinter. What's a, no, I'm not. So when you make you your have way not seen me run. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you make it to chapter uh, part two of the book, um, we actually talk about different paths to the top, and we talk about different career choices. Right. And because we suspect some of our readers and podcast listeners might be somewhat ambitious and they might ask themselves, well, it's fine. You know, this is on average what it takes to get to the top, but I want to be better than average. Um, and so we, um, what we did is we conducted an analysis of individuals who got to the CEO role faster than average. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. It's hard enough to get into the job, but to get the job at 40 is mm -hmm. highly unusual. Right. Mm -hmm. And so... We decided to see, well, so what are the career choices? Was it about pedigree? Was it about some, you know, special charisma that they had or some, you know, what was their special sauce? Um, and so we looked for some of the usual suspects, right? For example, we expected that, well, gee, maybe getting a Wharton MBA is a good thing. And mm -hmm. sure enough, about a quarter of the sprinters had an elite MBA, what we call kind of a top 10 MBA um, degree. The surprise came is when we realized that 97% of them did one of three things. Um, so a quarter of them had a top-tier MBA. 97% of them undertook what we called career catapults. Mm -hmm. And the career catapults were taking risky career choices that at the time may not have necessarily looked like their path to the top, maybe like your sidestep from Danaher. Mm -hmm. But actually, in hindsight, later on, ended up being a very instrumental path to them mastering the leadership for behaviors that we talked about and also getting the results and getting noticed. Uh, and so, for example, just one, one catapult. So 60% of the sprinters um, actually went, quote unquote, called go small to go big. So they left at Danaher. They left an academy company. In my case, I left McKinsey to go to this you know, consulting firm known GH Smart, <laughs> right? Um, and so they went into something that, and they, they may have done that within their companies as well, where they took, there's a story we tell in the book uh, about CEO of 3D, uh, 3D Corporation, who was on a fast path to the top, was getting one bigger GM role after another, and then actually took a sidestep to start a group from scratch, which made no sense within corporate hierarchy. And so it turns out that 60% of the sprinters did things like that. And then there are two other catapults that we talk about as well. So, picking so up now on you your know you're a sprinter. <laughs> you, can add that, you can add that to your resume. <laughs> so, so, so I'm intrigued by the idea of the career catapult. And I was wondering, Andy, have you had you know, what, what Elena describes as career catapults in your life? 
And if so, what what would they be, and what could others learn from those? Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I've had three. Right, probably the the very first one was my first general management job. I was twenty eight years old. I was involved in. I was at, at Danaher, and I was involved in an in integration um, of a of a platform of businesses we'd brought together. And I was given the opportunity um, to to take a business, um, and I had to close it. I had to clo- I actually had to walk into the middle of a closure that was not going very well, and I had to move it from uh, New York to Colorado. And then I had to build an entire team, and I had to set it up. Um, and that was absolutely a, a catapult where um, I very quickly had to realize all of the aspects of, of a, being a general manager in a very, very tight time frame with um, uh, any pressure you can imagine being thrown at you. Um, and so that was if – th- if I think back and I had to pick one, that would be it. I told you about some of the other struggles, but if I had to pick one thing that, that – that catapulted me from being kind of one of many to being um, in a pretty unique position at a very young age. That was it. Great. I think we're sort of almost coming to the end of uh, our, our time, but I, I, I just wanted to have a couple of uh, last questions for each of you. So, Alina, uh, any, any, any advice you have for young people uh, you know, who might be aspiring uh, to become leaders, maybe in a small way, but ultimately with the hope of becoming uh, CEOs. Uh, based on all the research you have done for the book, what, what advice would you give them? You know, one is don't worry about, if you don't know what you want to do right now, don't worry about it, because neither did Andy at your age, and look how far he's come. Um, most of us have a hard time knowing what the future will hold 10, 20, 30 years ago. And frankly, if we did have a perfectly designed career plan, it becomes obsolete the moment you put it on paper. Um, that would be one. And second, what struck me in this conversation today is that actually maybe one of the themes implicitly in the book, that sometimes the most dangerous thing you can do is play it safe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Fascinating. Uh, and same question to you, but I want to go back to the point you made earlier, which is the similarity between being a CEO and a social worker. Uh, and I wonder if you could you know, speak a little bit about how you think of your role in that sense <laughs> and, and what, do you, what would you like young people to learn about it, uh, about leadership from your perspective? So I am I am I have an incredibly deep seated belief that all organizations exist and thrive because humans exist and thrive. People, individuals exist and thrive, and then teams exist and thrive. And that as a leader, if you're a really a great leader, your job is to create the conditions under which those individuals and those teams can exist and thrive. And and so um, my job in many 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 ways. Is all about removing the barriers and creating the opportunities where people can thrive. At, at IDEX right now, we're at a very important moment in our history where we're really thinking deeply about how do we engage the front line of our company much more dramatically and, and moving to uh, from being a business. We've done a really nice job, and I'm very proud of, of, of the performance we've had. But how do you move towards full engagement of your entire employment base. And and that means, what that really means is that the folks who are in middle management think of their customer as the person on the front lines. 
And then the folks who are general managers, they think of their customer as those two steps. And ultimately, you come to me. That means, right, I, my job is to make sure that I am not the customer, mm-hmm. right? And some, in, in a lot of big organizations, that's what happens. The CEO and boards and investors become the customer. They're not the customer. The customer is the customer. Mm-hmm. And organizations exist to help people thrive and really take that customer obsession and how do you bring that to the front lines of the business? So as I, when I think about being a social worker, you know, my dad's job, my dad worked on um, uh, um, the Penobscot Indian Reservation for years, right? Very difficult environment. And his job was to help young kids thrive and to help the families help the young kids thrive and help the Penobscot Indian Nation help families help young kids thrive. It's the exact same job in many, many, many ways. Andy, Alina, thank you so much for this has been a really a fascinating conversation. And on behalf of Knowledge at Wharton and all the listeners, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.